last week we, we were looking at this text in 1 Corinthians. Uh, for those of you maybe who um, weren't here or uh, maybe this is the first time you've ever come to Curtis Lake Church, where what we're doing is we're, we're looking at this ancient letter in the Bible that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church. And what's ultimately contained in that letter is uh, all kinds of things, uh, many of which were just certain problems or challenges that were occurring within the church that, that Paul had to address. And so uh, we've been trying to learn uh, over the last few months, you know, like, what did, what did these instructions mean to this church, and what do these instructions mean to us? And um, so we're kind of in this, this second, uh, the second area of the letter where Paul is dealing with some problems of immoral behavior. And, uh, and, and, and the difficulty or reluctance or just outright negligence uh, on the part of the church to kind of deal with uh, those kinds of matters or even have a personal commitment and devotion to, uh, to seek living a life of purity and holiness, of, of, of fleeing sexual immorality. And, uh, and so last week we, we, we came across this text where, you know, Paul, uh, and we'll look at it again in just a moment, uh, where Paul talks about um, these categories of people, uh, essentially two categories, uh, the righteous and the unrighteous. And he, he says of the unrighteous, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he, uh, he actually kind of... Uh, pours into that statement some examples of the kinds of things that you would expect um, for the unrighteous to do. And, and, and so there's one, one particular phrase that we're especially going to spend time on this morning uh, because, well, it, it deserves it. Uh, so this is uh, an excursus, if you will, kind of this deviation from the normal track to just spend a little time in this thing. It's, uh, so today's going to be a little different. Uh, I will tell you that every preacher longs for the day when uh, he or she gets to preach the perfect sermon. <laughs> uh, to walk away from that experience thinking, man, did I nail that one. Um, today's not going to be that day. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about some things that will likely strike a nerve for a lot of you. Uh, for some of you, it might even be deeply personal. And while it may be difficult and it might evoke some strong feelings, I hope, I hope that this can ultimately result in more of a conversation starter than a conversation ender. I'm going to say things that you disagree with. Uh, I very likely may something that com uh, say something that comes off as, as insensitive, or uh, I could just simply be wrong. Uh, and I'm asking you this morning to just try your best to hear what I'm actually saying and not add to the inevitable mistakes I'm going to make along the way. Uh, you try your best to hear, and I'll try my best to be as clear and honest as I possibly can. Uh, I want to give everybody in the room here permission to wrestle with some things. 
This isn't a place where everyone has to believe every single thing exactly the same. Especially uh, if you're here today, you're, you're a person who's considering following Jesus, or you don't even know what following Jesus might even mean. Uh, I want you to know that you can be here. In fact, we're glad you're here. You can even belong here. And I don't just mean in this room at this particular time, but you can belong within the community of Curtis Lake Christian Church. Uh, there's room for you while you're trying to discover uh, if and how any of this that we talk about, not only today, but from week to week, if that's really for you. Uh, if you this morning identify as a member of the LGBT community, I'm especially glad that you're here. I want you to know that you are welcome here, and you're always welcome here. If I say some things that you disagree with, I hope that you won't take those things as me, in essence, rejecting you as the person you are, a person that I deeply believe is created in the image of God. I want you to know this morning that if that's you, you're not a mistake. You're not less than, you know, less than others who maybe represent the majority of people's sexual and gender experiences. I actually hope that I have the opportunity at some point to learn your name, um, to learn from you and to hear from your experiences and your perspectives. And I hope to have the opportunity to share with you from my life and perspective as well. But you're welcome in this church. You're welcome in my home and at my table. If given the opportunity, I would be honored to be a guest in your home and at your table. I don't want you to live in shame or fear that if this church really knew you, that it would reject you any more than I would want a person that was held hostage by a porn addiction to remain a prisoner for fear that telling someone might have them rejected. If you're a Christian, which I know represents the majority of people here this morning, I hope to challenge you, even if at some point you have this initial reaction of anger, maybe, or fear or distrust, as I challenge mine and your thinking and perspective. If you're here today and you affirm, which we'll talk about in just a little bit, but you affirm same-sex relationships, and you think that same-sex relationships ought to be weighed exactly the same as opposite-sex relationships, I hope to challenge you. Uh, if you're here and you think that the Bible is simple and clear in its opposition to same-sex relationships, and that should just settle the matter with no further discussion necessary, I hope to challenge you as well. I guess I hope to make everyone feel a little uncomfortable at some point along the way. And I hope that we're all okay with that. I hope that, especially those of you who are Christians in the room, you'd say with me, bring it on. That's what I came here for. Um, I also want, for those of you who feel like you maybe have a more conservative perspective on things like marriage and sexuality, I want you to feel safe. 
in this place. You know, it's not lost on me that our culture is insisting that people simply change deeply held beliefs. They'll even call those unbeliefs or those beliefs unjust, unfair. And perhaps you've been accused of bigotry. Perhaps you've been accused of homophobia. Perhaps you are guilty of bigotry or homophobia. I want you to know that this is a place where you can feel safe. You can say safe about asking honest questions without the fear of being judged or ridiculed. Uh, and so with that, I'd like for us to turn in our Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. If you don't have a Bible, the, the verses will be up on the screen here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. And here's the statement that Paul makes. Again, like the context of which is he's trying to differentiate between um, what you would naturally expect from those who are living among the unjust uh, and the fact that there was similar kinds of things happening within the church from those that were not supposed to be counted among the unjust was was a problem it was a it, first of all a, a problem a personal problem in that you had these people who were professing a faith in Christ but were living very very alternatively from what that faith uh, should ultimately produce uh, beyond that, you had the problem of this, the reputation of God, the reputation of Christ being smeared as the world looked in on this thing called the church. And instead of finding people that really lived up to the things that they said they believed, they, uh, they professed one thing and they lived another. And so, um, and so Paul, he, he asks this question. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Uh, now in this list, the list of all of those things that Paul listed, in the original language there are these two Greek words that are very difficult to translate. Uh, biblical scholars disagree to some extent on the best way to translate them. And, and then there's even further disagreement on how we should actually understand them once, if we are even able to translate them in the first place. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible, which we generally read on Sunday mornings, makes a translation decision with these two terms and translates it into the English, males who have sex with males. That is, the, the, the translators, in trying to ascertain the meaning of these two Greek words, ultimately, they had to make a decision and produce this translation. Uh, if you have the English Standard Version, you'll find the translation read like this describes men who practice homosexuality. Uh, the Common English Bible says both participants in same-sex intercourse. Uh, the New Living Translation, which I know a lot of you probably have and read quite often, maintains the distinction between the two words, and so 
translates it this way. It says, or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality. This passage of Scripture has come to be known as one of the Bible's six clobber passages uh, because of how it, along with others, has been weaponized, especially toward the queer community, and created this religious culture where uh, people who identify as a sexual minority are left to feel ashamed, afraid, rejected, and excluded. Um, and so today we want to just try to uncover how we are to take what Paul is talking about here, and what are we going to do with that? Uh, so let's start kind of at the beginning of the statement. Paul says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, this unrighteous is what we talked about before. It refers to a person who is, in essence, a violator of the law. Uh, the law is to be understood as the commandments that God has used to order our lives, right? That is, I, I am, as much as I might like to think so, I'm not this, this autonomous thing in the universe that just gets to do whatever I want without any consequence, right? You and I know that um, really for everything that we do and for every decision that we make, there are consequences. Some of those consequences are good. Some of them are bad, right? And so we know that there is, uh, I don't possess full control over all the forces of the universe, never mind um, the forces that impact uh, my life. Uh, Christians, they understand, they have this view of the created world that, that God specially created um, the universe, that God specially created the earth, that God specially created all that is in the earth, including you and I as human beings. And as human beings who are very different from the rest of creation in that we possess this thing called the soul and spirit, this immortal and invisible part of us that has a capacity to be in a relationship with the invisible, unseen, and eternal God, right? We're different, um, and, and we, have been, we have been given an incredible number of gifts that are wired into the fabric of what it means to be human. And so uh, one of those things is desire. You and I, we have all kinds of desire that, that will often rule uh, how we go about our lives, our routines, and all that. Uh, but God knew when he created human beings that we were incapable of infinite desire. That is, endless possibilities, or that everything is available to us, and, um, and we can, with impunity, just help ourselves to whatever and however much we care. And so what God did was God created some safeguards for you and I to live according to, some boundaries, um, some commandments, right? Some things where, uh, where God has determined what it is that is good for us and what is it that is not good for us. Well, because of the fall, because of sin, because of uh, the curse of sin that we all live under, uh, this law of God, rather than being the beautiful thing that orders our lives in a way that is most beneficial for us, instead we see the law as unfair, we see the law as unjust, we see the law as unnecessary, we see the law as something 
that's cramping our style. And so what we do is we push on the boundaries of that law. We even trespass over the boundaries of that law. The Bible would describe such a thing as disobedience as violating the law of God. And so Paul says there are those in this world who violate God's law. And it is these people that will not inherit the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is not for those who persist. Who persist in their um, determination and will uh, in the in the, the moral free agents that, 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 that they and that we are choose rather than heading toward God, they choose to move away from him. And so Paul takes a position on such people. He says they will be excluded from inheriting God's kingdom. Now, uh, you might recognize we have a problem Right? Uh, we have a problem because we have all violated God's commandments. Do I have any non-violators here? Anybody? No, we have all violated God's commandments. Uh, everyone that Paul wrote this letter to had violated God's commandments. Paul himself, the writer of this letter, had violated God's commandments. Further, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, it may be true that some of us still struggle with obeying certain aspects of God's law. Can I get an amen? Perhaps even one of the things that was listed here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We might even have an an ongoing, a, a big-time struggle with one of those things or something else that could just as easily have made that list. And so did Paul mean all of us when he talked about the unjust as not inheriting the kingdom of God if we are all violators of God's commands, if we all still struggle to some degree with violating God's commands? Did Paul then, did he mean all of us or is he talking about someone else and not us. And if not us, how can we presume not to be unrighteous when we are guilty of unrighteousness? Right? Am, I, am I not a glutton because I eat too much? Am I not an addict because I keep giving in to the same old tired habit almost as if I have to? Am I not unrighteous because I do things that are unrighteous. And, and so to answer that question, we have to talk about the good news versus the bad news. The, the bad news is that once you become unrighteous, you can't become righteous again. Right? Unless you can bring back to life the person that you killed. Unless you can take back the hateful words that you spoke. Unless you can go back in time and do the right thing when the first time you did nothing. Unless you can undo the harm that your prejudice caused, and unless you can undo all the unkind ways that you treated other people, that you talked about other people, or that you even felt about other people. Right? That's the bad news. Is that once we are unrighteous, we can't be righteous. The good news 
is that for all of our inability to right all the wrongs we've done, and despite the fact that we deserve to be punished ourselves for all those wrongs, God did something. And God declares us to be righteous through what was accomplished on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, he took all the unrighteousness that properly belonged to us, every single one of us. He took all of that upon himself. And so then God now showers and overwhelms us with grace. He does this not only for what we've done, for all of the water that's under the bridge that we can do nothing about, but even for the things that we continue to struggle with today. He's declared, essentially, a change of category for those who become his sons and daughters. Where we exchange the category of having once been unrighteous for now having become righteous. And some of you real smart ones out there, you say, well, that's too easy. <laughs> right? That barely seems like anything. I mean, surely I should still suffer at least a little bit, right, for all the wrongs that I've done. Surely I should be expected to play some catch-up, uh, to work really hard at things, good things, doing good things, to make up for some of the bad things. But that would be to say that you and I can each save ourselves. And the, the simple matter is, saviors of ourselves, we will never, ever, ever, ever be. It's an impossibility. The thief on the cross understood as much when he looked at Jesus and he cried out in utter desperation, Surely you're a king. Please save me. We're in no better position than he was, even though we may have the benefit of whatever life we still have to live. And it sounds easy only because we fail to grasp the meaning of how the weight of every act of unrighteousness was channeled onto Jesus when he suffered on the cross. Sure, it can sound easy from where we're standing, but it was anything but that. It was this cosmic act of love. It, it paved the way for a perfectly just and a perfectly righteous and a perfectly holy and a perfectly loving God to extend the offer of forgiveness to anyone who would embrace it. It sounds easy when we think that it costs us nothing, that it comes cheap. The truth is, and the paradox is this, that while I can't do anything to earn God's grace, I can't do anything to buy his forgiveness. I can't do anything to deserve his love anymore. I get all of those things. And I get more than that when I cry out for help, when, when in humility I acknowledge my own powerlessness, when I surrender everything I have come to love more than I love him. God's gift is it's, it's more than anything that I can pay, and yet it costs me everything. So that is the environment and the context where I experience the benefits of what we talked about last week, how God, for those who embrace his forgiveness and his love, who see themselves for what they are and see him for who he is, and they embrace the cross. What God does is he washes away the stains of the past. He then begins and continues this process of transformation which takes the rest of our lives. And then 
all the while when Satan is there bringing up the failures of our past, the failures of the present, the inevitable failures that are going to come tomorrow, God, he still screams throughout the universe and against all wisdom a declaration that you and I are righteous because we have been made the sons and the daughters of God. So how am I to take a list like this, especially if I see myself either in a small part of it or even a large part of it? Uh, sexually immoral, that was the first one. That's going to cast a pretty large shadow, right? Let's be honest. After all, um, there's a bunch of men who likely never had sex with anybody except for their wives that Jesus confronted. And he touched this deeper nerve when he poked into the unseen and private places of their hearts. Right? When he got in there, he pointed at the, the restless desires that permit them and us to objectify and use another person in the fantasy world of our minds. And he calls what the world has come to call something that's perfectly harmless, this mental playground, Jesus called it wicked. And he didn't care whether or not a person acted on or didn't act upon the fantasy that they so lovingly possessed and embraced. Or maybe greed should catch my eye. Um, I may have less than my neighbor or my parents or one of my siblings or most of the people that I work with, but can I really say that greed doesn't play some part in the decisions that I make? Am I really that free from something like greed? Can I really not be cal called to account how I choose to use my money? How infrequently I feel truly satisfied, like I couldn't stand to have another new thing? Would I be unashamed to have this tourism group made up of the poorest people in the world? Have them walk through my home and rifle through my closets, take an inventory of all my shoes, maybe look down my credit card statement? Or visit my off-site storage facility? Would I not be ashamed? Uh, I'm sure we can all rule out verbally abusive, right? We wouldn't use our words as weapons to tear someone else down. We would never find ourselves listening very carefully for the hot tea that's been going around. And then share it with somebody else in confidence. Don't tell anybody I'm telling you this, but... We wouldn't unfairly criticize someone or judge somebody too soon or inflict a thousand tiny cuts through sarcasm, passive aggressive responses, or even the silent treatment, right? We wouldn't do that. Hopefully you see the point. We are all, if I could talk to the Christians in the room this morning, we are both set free from the power of sin and at the same time, we are obliged to not let it become our master again, right? In this way, unrighteousness still continues to touch and affect our lives. Uh, we might celebrate the victory that we have over sin, which is a real thing, but at the same time, we're awaiting the moment when Jesus will fully and finally vanquish 
sin forever. So what do we do with Paul's statement? What do we do about this statement about how the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom and the example list that follows after that statement? You know, I think it's pretty clear that Paul is thinking in categories, the righteous and the unrighteous, and he describes how certain actions are those that belong to the unrighteous, right? They, the, these things are the identifying features of living and behavior that you can expect to find among the unrighteous. Not that we ourselves will from time to time be fully um, guiltless or innocent of some of those same exact things, as I think I've made the case for already. Uh, His point was to tell the church to stop acting in those ways because they had categorically become different persons. And it served as a warning to the person who claimed to be a true member of Jesus' church while at the same time unrepentantly and callously persisting in the works of unrighteousness. And so then we come to this matter of, as the CSB translates it, uh, males who have sex with males. And we have to ask, what is the unrighteous behavior that Paul is referring to? Interestingly, in recent years, the loudest expositions of this verse seem to have pronounced a very harsh judgment on LGBT people, right? Which is why a verse like this has been given the nickname a clobber passage. Uh, While at the same time, everything else on the list gets ignored. Uh, You don't ever hear sermons clobbering the swindlers. In fact, a lot of preachers who are calling down fire from heaven on gay people At the very same time, they are guilty of swindling their own congregations and followers. Uh, The act of adultery is an easy sin to point out, but again, our our theology and understanding of marriage, divorce, remarriage, singleness, celibacy, has had had a lot of the teeth taken out, a lot of the substance removed from it. A long time ago, society got soft on marriage, and so the church followed suit. But a more biblical understanding of marriage and sexuality would probably convict a lot more of us of adultery, even if we can work around it by saying we've never technically cheated on our spouses. And we've been, we've been far more lenient and understanding of other kinds of sexual immorality, like the kind of immorality we could imagine ourselves falling into, or that we have fallen into ourselves. And so it's been very easy For us to take the moral high ground against something like same-sex behavior, which never even blips on our radar, will never even remotely be a temptation for the vast majority of us. If you're here today and you're gay, and it's been your experience that religious people have treated you more harshly or that they too easily let themselves off the hook while you hold all the shame, I'm sorry that that has been your experience. I'm sorry that you were shown something other than the love of Jesus, which every believer in and follower of Jesus is required to show you. I'm sorry for how you may have been pushed away or treated as a lesser person or were stripped of your worth and dignity. I'm sorry if you were made to feel hated without ever having even been known or judged before ever having been understood. The only consolation that I can give you 
and everybody else here this morning. Because this kind of treatment extends even beyond the LGBT community. Some of you are here today, you've never struggled with something like same-sex attraction or a sexual orientation that is different from the majority experience or gender dysphoria or anything like that. And yet, you yourself have been on the receiving end of a church that has rejected you for one reason or another. And so the only consolation I can give is that we are going to try to be the kind of church that wouldn't do that to you or to anyone. You know, Jesus always met people right where they were. He always met people right where they were. And so we're going to try to model that same ethic, to meet people right where they are. Unlike Jesus, we're not going to do it perfectly. As much as I might want to, I'm going to screw it up, right? Because I'm not Jesus. You're not Jesus. But hopefully when we do screw it up, we'll be humble enough to repent, to seek forgiveness, and to learn to do better. So that brings us back to these two difficult words. What do they mean for us today? The two words in the text here, the first word, malakos, that's the Greek word, means soft. It simply means soft. Uh, it, it could be used as an adjective to describe an article of clothing, a soft piece of clothing. Uh, it could, as an idiom, mean particularly a man who assumes the presumably female, more passive role in the act of sex. As a slur, it would mean something like effeminate or not manly. And some conclude that Paul, what he's talking about when he uses this word is a male prostitute. And so that's what he's, in fact, denouncing is male prostitution. Um, however, Paul, he could have, if that's what he meant, he could have chosen better, a better word, a, a more specific word to say that. Uh, and so probably there's something more broad that he actually has in mind. The second word, arsenokoitai, uh, I know you guys are fascinated by all the Greek stuff here, but uh, this word is actually a word that's original to Paul. Uh, uh, part of the difficulty with us translating the word and then also ascertaining the meaning of the word is that there's just not a lot to go on. And so uh, an argument will sometimes be made that we can't know what it means. You know, like, well, we can't know what it means. Nothing to see here. Let's just move on. But I think that's a pretty weak position to take. Uh, when Paul wrote this word, uh, he must have known the meaning of it, and he must have expected that his readers would have understood the meaning of it as well. And so what we do know about the word is that it is composed of two parts. Uh, one word that means male, uh, and not men, not like grown men, but male, regardless of age, and bed, right? These are the two words, male and bed, that make this word. Uh, and so clearly it has something to do with males, and it has something to do with sexual activity. So to just say we have no idea what it means is problematic, especially uh, when, and this is getting a little bit nerdy, but uh, in the Old Testament, we have two of the other so-called clobber passages in Leviticus that uh, also denounce same-sex behavior. And um, that, that passage of Scripture, like the rest of the Old Testament, was at some point prior to Jesus' arrival on earth, it was translated into the language of the day, which is Greek, the same 
language that our New Testaments are written in. It's called the Septuagint version, and this is probably the version of the Bible that Paul would have been very, very familiar with. Uh, Paul spoke Hebrew, but he spoke Greek as well. Well, when you look at the, the, those, those two texts, what you find there is not the same word in the same way as Paul uses it here in 1 Corinthians, but you do find the two parts of the word in one place close to one another and another place right next to each other. Almost as if Paul would think it's pretty obvious the connection that he is making to those Leviticus passages. And to just ignore that connection, I think, is... Um, it's dishonest. Uh, it, it, uh, while I would agree that the absolute easy and simple understanding of what Paul is talking about here is probably beyond the scope of what we will ever accomplish. The idea that we, can't, that we just can't figure it out or really are left with relatively no idea, I think, is a problem. Beyond that, uh, ancient translations of the Bible like Latin and Syriac and Coptic, right? These things that were written many, 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 many centuries ago. When you read those particular versions, they all understood these terms as referring to some kind of same-sex intercourse. Now let me say what would be a bad translation of this text. and That is to just simply use the word homosexual. Uh, and you've probably heard... Uh, if you've ever paid any attention to this whole matter in question, you, you've probably heard how uh, irresponsible using such a term as that has been. And, and so you will find that that is used um, pretty infrequently, if ever. Uh, it's a bad translation because what it does is it just assumes that men um, uh, who identify as gay, as homosexual, and women too, that that they're just automatic, that they are uh, acting uh, on those attractions that they're experiencing. Uh, that orientation that they would say kind of defines the way they experience the world. Uh, back when Paul wrote this, uh, when he used these words and described the behavior of certain men, it was expected that those men were not exclusively involved in same-sex relationships. It was expected that they would have, at the same time, been involved in opposite-sex behavior, whether it was legitimate opposite-sex behavior, like with their spouse, or illegitimate opposite-sex behavior with, like, a prostitute or some liaison. Um, they wouldn't have been exclusive. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's grossly improper to just assume that if somebody identifies as homosexual or gay, that they are also acting on those attractions. And so here are the quest some questions that I think ultimately are raised. Um, um, first of all, what is not in question, I think is important to address. And what is not in question when it comes to this conversation within Christianity uh, and within our church, the question is not, is all same-sex behavior something that the church should affirm? Nobody's asking that, really. I mean, like nobody that... Again, when it comes to what's happening inside the church, that is not something that really we need to worry about taking seriously. That's not, that's not the question, right? The people who would advocate for something like same-sex relationships as being uh, of 
having equal status as opposite-sex relationships. None of them are saying, oh, well, you know, um, if you identify as uh, gay or lesbian, well, you can just go ahead and have any kind of sexual relationship that you want, right, because, uh, because of your orientation. Nobody's, nobody's saying that. So the real question is this. The real question is, should the Christian community expand its historical definition of marriage to include a lifelong, committed, consensual, loving, and monogamous relationship between two people of the same sex? That is the question. It's important for us to remember that that is the question, right? We don't, wherever you may stand in particular on how you'd answer that question, don't, don't run away from that question and start uh, giving what you think are good answers to questions that nobody's asking, right? That's the question. We know that marriage is a good and beautiful thing. It's a high and holy calling that two people are called into. It's a covenant, a lifelong covenant between two people of the opposite sex. That is how we have always seen marriage. Well, now we have an understanding that there are people who experience exclusively attraction to people of the opposite sex. And so the question is, should the covenant of marriage be extended to people with that experience as well? And so the question, I think, is, does Scripture need to be re-examined? On, on the question of marriage, does Scripture need to be re-examined in light of what we have discovered in this modern era, right? Like the developments in things like psychology and sexuality and things like that. Um, does, does Scripture, if we are to re-evaluate it, does it leave room for the kind of monogamous relationship that some people are advocating for? Have uh, the cultural developments in our world and has LGBT advocacy efforts, have they gotten some things right and raised our awareness about something that we may have been blind to before? Really, that's kind of the question. Does Scripture need to be reevaluated? Or, or can we honestly say that we as a church, we got some things wrong. We did some things that were really wrong in past years. The way we treated people. The view that we had, the doctrine that we had, the position that we had, led us to treat people in a way that was unchristlike. Could we acknowledge that and say that, well, the problem isn't what Scripture teaches. The problem was with how Scripture was presented, how Scripture was lived out. Often to shun people, to shame people, to silence and so, should we leave the historical Christian definition of marriage intact? The definition that says marriage belongs exclusively, permanently, monogamously to one man and one woman for life? That is the very definition of Christian marriage. Should we leave that intact and re-elevate it to its proper significance? So, to, in essence, to hold our position on what is the definition of marriage, but then also to drastically change our posture toward those who find themselves believing differently or experiencing things differently. In other words, is what we need to do as a church provide a fresh but still faithful representation of what Scripture teaches. 
so that we can, instead of being swayed and moved by what culture is demanding, do we provide a corrective in this cultural moment? There is undoubtedly immense pressure to revise beliefs that have been held for thousands of years and to revise them with urgency, right? It's not only to um, uh, people who are advocating uh, for an expansion of the Christian definition of marriage. Not only is there an insistence that it must be done, but it must be done with haste. And that pressure is only going to increase. And then... uh, One other question is, well, given where we stand, where and how do LGBT people fit in the community of Curtis Lake Church? Uh, Let me share with you the two prevailing positions on the matter. There is, first of all, the affirming position. Now, um, this position takes the stance that Paul most, when, when Paul talked about these things, and in fact, whenever the Bible talks about same sex behavior, it it, it meant certain forms of oppressive sexual expression, like between older men and younger men, or men of higher social status and men of lower social status, of masters and slaves. And so, so this text and really any of the texts aren't even relevant to the question, should Christian marriage be extended to monogamous lifelong unions between two people of the same sex? Right? The argument goes like this. The ancient world, it had no conception or experience with what is being argued for today. That Christian marriage should, in fact, be expanded. Uh, That's, in essence, kind of how the argument goes. I could say a lot more um, about that. But let me share with you the non-affirming position. Uh, The non-affirming position holds that while Paul certainly had the kinds of sexual expression that, um, that the affirming people have in mind, uh, that Paul wouldn't have just limited it to those kinds of things. Uh, Paul would have, as, 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 as naturally and instinctively as a person can, he would have rejected the premise that any kind of same-sex sexual expression, even as a permanent loving union, would have gone against the design and the purpose of marriage. And so our position as a church maintains a similar view We don't deny that people may have an atypical sexual orientation or that people might experience exclusive attractions to members of the same sex or that attraction and desire can sometimes be fluid in a person's experience. We're not not against people who have a different experience from the majority experience. But what we are is we are for this thing called marriage, the historically Christian view of marriage, which specifically and necessarily is defined as a permanent covenant bond between a man and a woman. We are for this historical Christian view of human sexuality, which reserves sexual intimacy exclusively between a man and a woman who are married to each other, and that all other expressions of sexuality, they contradict God's law. As I've said, we can easily point out how woefully short we fall in that ideal, but the solution isn't to lower the bar to something that feels more doable, but rather we should strive to reach for the purity that God is inviting us to live in, whether we are married or single or gay or straight. We can easily point out how Christian marriage has been weakened 
in its acquiescence to culture and to our own whims and desires. But the solution isn't to lower the bar so we can feel less badly about our flippancy toward marriage, but rather we should strive to regain the beauty of what it means to be called to marriage and what it means to be called to singleness, neither of which is better or worse or more or less human than the other. People are going to ask, well, how can it be considered fair and just to disallow someone to act on such a strong desire like romantic love or the desire for marital intimacy? And next week we're going uh, to talk about and dig deeper into the matter of desire and freedom. And so we'll kind of come back to look at that a little more closely. Uh, some people would say, you know, sure, not everyone wants to get married, but why would somebody who wants to be married be just relegated to living the rest of his or her life alone simply because of their sexual orientation? Uh, and in a couple weeks, in two weeks, we're going to dig deeper into the topics of marriage and singleness and celibacy and revisit the implications that it has for all of us. Uh, we're going to talk about what is the meaning of marriage. Do we understand its real purpose? And does sex difference really matter when it comes to marriage? There are some very important things at stake with this conversation, and I thank you so much for your patience as we kind of grind through this. I know it's a lot. But there are things at stake. Number one, we have to work to get this right. At stake are people that God loves. People who have often been marginalized and victimized by forms of oppression and bigotry that come from people outside the church and most horrifically and unfortunately and grievously from people inside the church as well. At stake also is fidelity to our Christian witness faithfulness to the truths that God has revealed to us, faithfulness to the gospel, which is good news only to the extent that it hasn't been stripped of its power and redacted until it has no substance left in it. We don't want to maintain a form of Christianity simply because, to our knowledge, it has always been this way. But neither do we want a resulting Christianity that Christ himself never would have imagined or the early church never would have recognized. So what needs to change? If we're not going to change our position on how we define marriage, and we're not, is there anything that we do need to change? To that I would say yes. Yes, the church undoubtedly failed to be a place where sexual and gender minorities could easily find Christ. Barriers were built. We did sometimes do things that Jesus blasted the religious leaders of his day for. We made it hard for people to enter the kingdom of God. That needs to change. We need to ask ourselves, how do we actually promote a safe and loving place for LGBT people to find and to abide in Christ and live in meaningful community with the rest of our church? To that I'd say, well, first of all, and I think we've been working toward this, and we will continue tirelessly working toward this, we have to build a culture of grace. Right? That's something that I can't mandate. We have to build it, and it takes time. Um, secondly, we have to stop thinking or acting like LGBT people are only outside the church. Truth is, there's a really good chance they're in the room right now. We have to make room for their existence and celebrate what they can uniquely offer the church. You know, 
a person who identifies as gay is experiencing same-sex attraction, but then with that determines to live in celibacy because they hold the same ethic that I do when it comes to sexuality. And so they, they commit to celibacy. They commit to living in singleness before the Lord. In contrast to all of the intense feelings and desires that they might have for romantic love, that kind of person, that person can really teach us a lot more about sexual purity than I ever could. Um, this past year, we brought in an organization to help our church leadership team um, start wading through these waters of becoming the kind of church that, um, well, if we can become a church that is safe and good for LGBT people to find Christ, then it's going to be a good and safe place for anybody to find Christ. And so they shared with us four things um, that we need to look to do. Number one, we need to enhance church inclusion. This doesn't mean that anyone can serve in any position that they want, right? We already have... Um, like, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it, um, requirements that, that, that have to do with what somebody believes uh, or how somebody lives before they can do certain things in our church. And so it doesn't mean that when we're talking about inclusivity that, that, that anybody can serve in any position no matter what, but we do need to look for ways for people to find a real sense of belonging within our church community. Secondly, we need to increase family acceptance, right? If you're here today and you're, um, you identify as a member of the LGBT community, I want you to know that we are growing toward a commitment of being your family no matter what. Like, if you want to be here, we want you to be here. If you want to leave here, we will honor and respect your wishes and give you your space as you desire. If you ever want to come back, we will welcome you with open arms and with celebration. Thirdly, we need to protect against victimization. We are not going to be the kind of place that condones attacks on the person that you are, the person that God made you, a person who bears God's very image. We will stand with you. I will stand with you when you're confronted by those who will victimize. We will weep and grieve with you in solidarity. We acknowledge that there's nothing truly safe when it comes to following Jesus. We are all called to radical obedience, to recklessly forsaking ourselves. And so we all should expect to be confronted by God's gentle but powerful spirit who convicts us of sin, who leads us towards Christ's righteousness, and who comforts and consoles us all along the way. And then finally, we need to nourish faith identity. There's a lot of talk about identity and the importance of identity. We want to nourish faith identity. We're all seeking to discover our truest identity, that identity that rises above all the labels and categories that humans have invented. Our identity as Christians, our identity is Christ. It isn't what we've done or what we've been known for or who we're attracted to or what we may struggle with. Our identity is Christ. 
And so we're going to strive to be people who plant and water, not people who cut at the roots of everything that we think is evil and wrong. No, we're going to come and we're going to plant and we're going to water. We're going to nourish. And we're going to pray for growth. We will strive to remember that our theology, it might place a heavier burden on some people. A person who is gay and who chooses to remain celibate. We will recognize the burden that that may create for a person, a burden that I don't have to carry. And so it is our duty to match that heavier burden with even heavier expressions of love and grace and care. We have to stop treating the sins of heterosexuals any more lightly than the sins of homosexuals. I'm required to judge myself and reserve judgment toward others. I have plenty of my own business to bother with. And I don't have to worry about cleaning up everybody else too. That work belongs to a good, kind, compassionate, and loving God. And he does a much better job than I could ever do at it anyway. And so I'll leave it to him.